Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee, and I'm so glad you've joined me today. I apologize there has been a gap in podcasts. My lovely, funny, sprightly 94-year-old mother-in-law passed away last weekend of natural causes. She was bright and alert right up until the last couple of days of her life, and she passed peacefully with the help of her local hospice in Texas. And I just want to send a shout out to all the hospice personnel. Y'all are special people. And so I would like to dedicate this episode to her. She was a great gardener, loved her honey. As I've said before, she checked in regularly on how the bees were doing and when she would be getting her honey. And she did. She did get to taste this season's honey. Wow, that's one of those things I'm so glad I did not put off in sending her bottles of honey right away. I got a good reminder there to not put off those important things. So, in the spirit of gardening, I would like to introduce you to the upcoming guest, Jimmy Gatt of the Atlanta area. I heard Jimmy speak when he responded to a question a presenter asked at the Georgia State Conference. The presenter was Cindy B., a beekeeper that I very much hope to interview. He'll tell you about that. But when I started the interview, I said, I can't remember what question it was that she asked. And he tells the story of what he said and how that is a part of his work now. He is an enthusiastic advocate of planting trees and shrubs for bees, but not just any trees and shrubs, but very specifically trees and shrubs that bloom during the summer dearth in his area. And I think this is just splendid to pick a project like that, and he has really dedicated himself to it. He is also available to speak to bee clubs via Zoom. Most of the plants that he talks about would work anywhere east of the Mississippi, so with some adjustment, um, your club could get some great benefit. He, at the end, has his email address that he shares with you, and that is bees at jimmygat.com. That's B-E-E-S at J-I-M-M-Y-G-A-T-T dot com. So definitely get in touch with him if you are looking for a presenter this winter. In most of the warm areas of the country, you can plant shrubs and trees all winter. And it's actually a great time to plant them if you can get a hold of them. And he even talks later in the podcast about places to get a hold of them. I'm going to include in the show notes a list of resources he shared on where to get shrubs and trees for bees. And if you have any ideas or tips on that, please share them with me. I'm at blueridge714 at gmail.com. So without further ado, here is Jimmy reminding me when I had forgotten what the question was that he answered that made me take note and get in touch with him and want to interview him. Here we go. It was Cindy B., who, and yes, her last name is in fact B, B B-E-E, and she actually used to be in Georgia, but now she's working in West Virginia with the, uh, doing a nonprofit up there to help out-of-work coal miners become beekeepers. It's very noble, and she gave this emotionally stirring presentation called Beekeeping as a Superpower, and when she finished, she asked everybody the question, what will you do with this life that you've been given? And I loved that question because it's so open-ended and it is so challenging to those of us who want to take our life and do something good with it. And so the answer I gave was, I want beekeepers long after I'm gone to be able to say to one another, here in Georgia, we used to have a horrible summer dearth, but thanks to the actions of beekeepers in the past, we no longer do. 
I just love that. I thought that was so moving with the idea. I mean, I guess uh, it made me realize that I feel like my goals are so small by comparison. But at the same time, when you said it, I realized that type of thing is entirely doable. In fact, yes, it is. And I have heroes that I think of, and one of them is Warangri Mathai, and she was a Kenyan woman who in Kenya was disturbed by the fact that there weren't enough trees. And so she enlisted a team of volunteers who were almost all women to plant trees in Kenya. And how many trees did they plant? Around 42 million trees. And in doing so, it literally changed the culture of Kenya in a myriad of ways because these trees provided jobs and they provided shelter to the women when they were carrying water back and forth from villages as they could now gather under the trees and converse with one another. And so it literally created community. And so I'm needless to say, I'm very passionate about trees and I believe that this is the major tool that we have to do something like killing the summer dearth. And I know you have quite a few downloads in your podcast. And so I'm certainly rather excited that I have this opportunity to be able to talk to so many people all at once. But for those of you listening to the podcast and don't know what the summer dearth is, is in my region in Georgia and many regions throughout the United States where beekeepers are, most of the nectar that is produced by plants happens in the spring, like the huge majority of it happens in spring. But then once you get into the high summer, is there's almost nothing blooming that provides nectar. And there's multiple reasons for this, and we can talk about those. But beekeepers call this the summer dearth. And it's a really tough time to be a, a beekeeper because all the hives get angrier. They start robbing one another. You open a hive and you might st- set off a storm of robbing. And bees can starve or abscond. So it's really, really tough. Well, tell me about your beekeeping. Tell me what, what you do with bees. Sure. Is I actually only have three hives right now because honestly, and I've told people this many times, is there's multiple things that you can get out of your beekeeping. It can be, you know, it can be the honey, or you could decide to have a huge apiary and decide to sell bees. And or you could really be into the beeswax. Or you could be into apitherapy. You know, there's so many ways to approach this and get fulfillment from it. And honestly, where I get most of my fulfillment is in public speaking and in teaching. And like I said, I only have three hives right now. And I decided to become a beekeeper three years ago because I simply wanted better pollination in my garden. And then I quickly learned that beekeeping is about a thousand times more interesting than gardening. And from there... I learned that there was this thing called the summer dearth, and I hated it, and I thought we got to be able to do something about that. Maybe I could plant some things, and so I tried to plant some dahlias, and um, I realized that's not going to make a, a bit of difference no matter how many dahlias I plant. And from there, I was on YouTube looking at beekeeping videos, and I found a YouTube video from a man named Mike Connor, who is a arborist and a beekeeper in Michigan. And he was talking about trees for bees. And he gave me this stunning fact about the basswood tree. The American basswood tree is Tilia Americana. 
And this fact was two, just two basswood trees with an 80-foot span have the same nectar output as an entire acre of clover. And that made me realize I'm wasting my time if I'm trying to plant dinky little flowers. I need to be planting trees. But there's no way I could plant enough trees to fix a summer dearth. I needed to start enlisting people to do so. I just love this. I just love it, Jimmy. And I have to confess, I have to confess, because when I heard you talk about trees, my ears just perked up because there's so many classes going on in my area of very well-meaning people about pollinator gardens, and it's all little tiny, beautiful flowers, and that's wonderful. But my thought is, is at least in my garden, when I stop tending them, the weeds take over and there go the flowers. But the thing I love about trees and even long-lived shrubs is that, you know, I'm an old beekeeper. So if I plant them, they could be feeding bees for generations. That To me, that is so exciting. Absolutely. It is a living legacy that we can leave behind for not only our honeybees, but also our native bees and all of our nectiferous animals. And we are suffering from a real nectar shortage right now. And I alluded to this earlier, but it comes from multiple, multiple causes. The first one being the proliferation of the number one cultivated crop in America, which is turf grass. We have more acres of front lawn than we do of corn, wheat, and soy combined. And it is literally a food that feeds nothing, and it consumes vast amounts of water and chemicals and time and effort and fossil fuels to tend these lawns that we love for historical reasons and nothing else. So suffice it to say, I don't like lawns very much at all. I am just loving this. And I can say this because I know that my spouse does not listen to my podcast. We have had this long running uh, transition over the last 22 years of going from the family goal of the the perfect mode lawn, which if you grow up with that, then that seems normal. I did not. I, I grew up in rural Alabama, and that just wasn't so much a thing as, as a more suburban growing up. So the, the transition of um, when we bought this farm, there was about probably two acres of mown grass. And I have just set it as my goal to cover up as much of that as I can with pollinator trees and shrubs. Do you have any basswood trees? I do not. In my valley, I do not have so many basswood. I I bought a couple of little leaf linden just because I happened to see them at a, at a nursery. But one of my mentors, who's just one valley over, he has a ton of basswood. And of course, he, he gets the... Uh, the minty basswood honey. Mm -hmm. I want to plant some basswoods in my valley. I, I'll tell you, the first basswood I ever met was in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and outside the VA Medical Center where I was waiting on my spouse for a doctor's appointment. I'm out there wandering around the lawn, and there's this enormous tree. I mean, like three people around uh, if you if you join hands and I was I walked out and I was standing under it and it was literally vibrating you could feel the buzz in your entire body and I looked up and 
And those were all bees in those beautiful mm-hmm. little bell-like flowers. And I had no idea what kind of tree it was. So I'm taking photographs. I'm sending it to my friends going, what kind of tree is this? And that is the first basswood I ever met. Yes. And that is a normal thing because that basswood was probably blooming in June when the dearth is starting. Is June is a really tough time for bees. And so there's very few things blooming that actually provide nectar. And so when a tree like that opens up with just gallons and gallons and gallons of nectar, it's going to attract every pollinator from a five mile radius and they're going to go nuts over it. And it's honestly, it's been shocking to some people when they, when they find a summer tree like uh, sumac, sumac or, or vitex. And I'll talk about those later because when it starts blooming, it's just going to be mobbed with bees and it makes a loud sound and they think, Oh my gosh, these bees are swarming, but no, 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 they're feeding and they're starving. And so they're absolutely grateful for it. Oh, it's just an amazing thing. And I have to say, at another place in Asheville, downtown Asheville, there was a building that I used to go to regularly. And about two doors down, they had, I mean, just between houses in downtown Asheville, there were about three basswood trees in in the just a little strip between two houses. And they were enormous. They were as tall as two-story houses covered with blooms and so I would just go and visit them and look at them when I was there and to my complete dismay the last time I was there they have cut them down and put a pretty little flower garden in that spot oh that hurts my heart I know me too and and so I want to I want to hear you encourage every listener that whatever their particular ecosystem is to find their basswood. And I know some people in other countries that listen to this podcast or out West, I mean, their trees are entirely different, but I am happy to, I want to hear you talk about your favorite trees because probably much of everything that you would be able to plant in Georgia a lot of the entire Eastern United States could probably plant those. Yes, that's true. And there is a fantastic book. And if you are a beekeeper, you definitely need to go and buy this book and support the author. It's written by Shannon Trimboli, T-R-I-M-B-O-L-I, and it is called Plants Honeybees Use in the Ohio and Tennessee Valleys. And the plants that she talks about will grow pretty much anywhere east of the Mississippi, excepting maybe South Florida and North Maine. That's the plants that I generally like to talk about because they will grow practically anywhere here. They would probably also grow in eastern China, though they might be invasive there. Uh, And they would probably grow in many other parts in Western Europe, though they would not be native there. Uh, The tree you mentioned earlier, the little leaf linden, is Tilia cordata, and it actually is a European tree. I'm not sure how well it will bloom in regions like ours because it gets pretty hot down here. It has to do with what we call the heat hours, which is the number of hours that we have over 86 degrees Fahrenheit. So I think that basswood, also called linden, which is Tilia americana, might be a better fit for our southern region. But you asked me, what are my Yeah, you, what you are your favorites? My favorites. Okay, well, I've already talked about basswood quite a bit. My second one would be sumac. And every time I bring up sumac, I always say, okay, raise your hand if you just thought of poison sumac, and people will raise their hand. And for whatever reason, the word sumac makes people think I'm talking about poison sumac. I could talk about ivy, and they won't think I'm talking about poison ivy. But sumac and poison sumac are different. Poison sumac is in the toxicodendron genus along with poison ivy. It grows in swamps. If you live in a swampy area, you're probably going to run into it. But if you don't, you're probably never, ever going to see it. 
And it makes me sad because I know that people will find sumac and someone will tell them, oh, that's poison sumac. And so they kill it. And it just breaks my heart because sumac is probably the best tree that you can plant for bees. It's either going to be a small tree or a large shrub. It's colonizing. And what that means is that it's going to grow up with suckers. And some people don't like that. Um, I actually do because that means that's going to be more food for pollinators. And there's three that are very common in the eastern United States, there's going to be staghorn sumac, which is Rus typhina, R-H-U-S, Rus typhina. And it's called staghorn sumac because the stems are furry, like a stag's horns. There's going to be smooth sumac, which is Rus glabra. And it is recognizable from staghorn sumac because its stems will actually be smooth. And then there's going to be winged sumac, which is Rus copalinum. And winged sumac on its stems will have little bitty leaflets that look kind of like wings. And my personal favorite of those three is winged sumac because it blooms in July in my zone, in my area. And July is the height of the summer dearth. It's the worst part. And that tree just gets bombarded with bees when it blooms. And sumac honey, honestly, most most beekeepers haven't ever had sumac honey to produce because usually when the bees go and forage from sumac trees, they're starving. And so they just eat the nectar instead of turning it into honey. But if you have a really good surplus of it, then sumac honey is one of the best honeys you could possibly taste. That is delightful. See, I did not even know that that bees love sumac because the only time I had it was when we lived in Arkansas. There was some and the bluebirds love the berries. So my association is watching bluebirds just gorge on the berries. That's so interesting that you would love that. Because, I mean, I've heard people call that a weed tree, and I changed my tune once I saw how much the birds love it. But where on earth would a person find one? I mean, that's not something that nurseries typically offer. That's true, is there are, is you have to, you're not going to be able to go to your big box store and probably buy any plant that I recommend, because the big box stores are going to be selling plants that are cultivated by the nursery trade that they think consumers want. And this kind of ties into one of the problems of what the summer dearth is. It happens partially because people want more flowers. They want longer lasting flowers. They want prettier flowers. They want plants that are going to be pretty like that for a long time. And this is how we ruined roses, is if you've ever seen an old fashioned rose, its flower looks like a peach flower or a cherry flower because those are all members of the rose family. It's got five petals on it. And the nectary is exposed, but that was too boring for people. So they made it a compound flower by cultivation. And now it has lots and lots of petals. And so bees cannot get to the nectaries anymore. It's no longer a nectar producing plant. Another plant that I like to pick on is crepe myrtle. This is a tree from China. It's Ligerstroemia species. It's been cultivated for more than 100 years to be a plant that blooms for a long time in the summer. And one way to make it bloom for longer is to breed the plant such that it doesn't give nectar anymore. And so this is always so angering to me when I can walk down my street and see in the, in the height of July and the worst part of the summer dearth, just crepe myrtle after crepe myrtle, and there's not a single bee on any one of them. There are a few cultivars of crepe myrtle that are nectiferous, as I call it, nectar-giving, and your listeners will know if they have one because they will see bees all over it. You, you just answered a question because I have seen them covered in bees. And then, and for I have one, and it it doesn't bloom very well here because we just don't quite get hot enough up here in the higher elevations. But 
I, I haven't seen a single bee on it. So yes, it, sometimes it's hard to find those old fashioned ones that have not been quote unquote improved. I know I struggle with, uh, because I have so much ground that I'm trying to cover. So I love those, the big uh, species ones that are just huge, you know, they're 12 foot tall of whatever it is. And I noticed that the nurseries tend to specialize in little tiny, you know, dwarfing everything. And I'm like, no, give me the big one. Give me the giant one. But they're hard to find. Oh, yes, they are. And, you know, and I understand them wanting to make dwarf varieties because there's a lot of people who want plants and don't have a lot of space. And that's why I always like talking to beekeepers out in the country because they're like, oh, I only have 30 acres. I'm like, gosh, I would kill to have one acre where I live. But um, do, you, do you have any spots in your property that are wet or that are flooded or by a stream? Yes, I do. It, it, the thing about our property is only five acres, but it has every combination. You know, there's dry, sunny, there's there's dry shade, there's wet, sunny, there's lots of um, wet part shade. So yes, I have a lot of water. So your swampy areas or places that flood or are next to a stream is where I would plant buttonbush, which is Cephalanthus occidentalis. And buttonbush is a, a large shrub or a small tree. It's going to be as, probably about as wide as it is tall. And it absolutely loves wet feet. And that's a, a plant uh, term for when the roots get inundated with water and they stay wet for a long time is if you have if a cherry tree if that happens to a cherry tree that's probably going to die but the button bush will absolutely love it and the button bush has a flower that looks like a white spiky ball it's really cool looking and it is going to bloom in the summer and the bees are absolutely going to be all over it butterflies too Oh, how fun. That sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful. And and actually, it's kind of tricky to find plants that like uh, wet feet because I've killed many a thing putting it in the in the wet spots on, on my ground. It's true. And I've done a lot of volunteering for Trees Atlanta, which is a civic organization in Atlanta that, well, plants and takes care of trees. And they've planted almost 120,000 trees in Atlanta in the past 20 years. And their motto is the right tree in the right place. So if you've got a spot that's wet and swampy, that's where you need to start putting button bushes in. I love it. That's what a gardener friend and I were talking about um, when we're looking up a new plant. She actually works at a nursery. When we're looking up a new plant, if you look online, it'll say, you know, this plant tolerates A, B, and C. And I told her, I said, I don't want tolerates. I want what does it love? Because... Somewhere on my property, there's that spot. But it's funny how hard it is to find that information. It, it is tricky, and it's it's trickier even because people have microclimates in their in their land and 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 changing conditions. So it's really hard to find exactly the right tree for the right place. So how do you like if you um, if you had a person they've moved to a new house, say in a suburb, and there's not much of anything planted. Um, some you know somewhere in the southeast. How do you talk to them about how to get started? How to learn what they need to learn? I first want to introduce them to different species and let them know what things are actually blooming in summer. And I focus on native plants. And of course, I live in Georgia, and so native to me means something that's going to grow within or be native to some. You know, I, I don't know. I guess maybe two or three hundred miles from where I am. The issue of what is native gets pretty thorny pretty fast, and I don't certainly don't want to include any invasive species, though there are some 
what I call exotic species that I do recommend for bees, I, I really try and focus on natives. And that's really my first job is to try and introduce them to different species that bloom in summer, give nectar, and are native. And I generally dislike it when people say, here's a list of plants that are good for bees, and they just give you a single long list, but they don't tell you what they are, what their growth habit is, what they're like, how much nectar they're going to produce, do they grow in your area, et cetera, et cetera. And especially what other good things come from these plants. Like you mentioned the birds eating the sumac berries, beekeepers. You can take those berries from the sumac bush or tree and don't make that gross tea out of them. Instead, put them in your smoker and burn them. They make the absolute best smoker fuel I've ever had. Oh, how wonderful. That is great. And uh, do you have favorite nurseries that you can get these things from? Are they in Atlanta? Or do you have anything mail order that other people can get things from? My first nursery that I would recommend would be Dan Long's nursery. It's honeybeetrees.com. Is, he is a clematis nurseryman for decades. Clematis is a vine that uh, you typically see on people's mailboxes, but he decided that this whole trees for bees things has legs because lots of people have been talking about this and and particularly me in my region. And he's um, now trying to provide these beekeepers and also gardeners with these trees that are especially going to bloom in summer. That is great. Thank you for that. Yeah, because I found it to be very challenging to um, to find to find some of these. It's like I'll find them on a list of, um, you know, native plants bees love, and then tracking down the plant can be a challenge. I'm in love right this minute with redbud trees because... I got one. I believe the the variety is maybe uh, Appalachian Spring. My, I'm maybe messing that up. It is covered in blooms, of course, the little pink blooms in the spring. And it's another tree. It's not that big of a tree. It's in, uh, I have it in a well-drained slope in uh, probably three quarters of the day sun. And it is vibrating with bumblebees in particular. It's got my honeybees on it too, but the bumblebees love it in the springtime. Yes, redbud is, is many people's favorites. It is Circus canadensis is the binomial. It is a native tree and it blooms in early spring. So it's going to provide bees with more early spring honey, which, I, which if I liked particular spring plants, the, that's the ones that I actually favor. I don't like it when people are going to plant things that bloom right in the height of spring because it's going to have the least amount of impact. That plant, when it grows up, is going to have flowers and produce nectars, and it might not attract any bees at all because it's competing with everything around it that's blooming. And this is another reason why I tell people to plant things that bloom in summer because that's going to have the highest positive impact on our pollinators, not just our honeybees, all of our bees. I love how you're just zooming in. You like spotted the need and you're zooming into that spot. Now, have you always been a plant person or did you come to that with the bees or how did that happen? To be honest, no, I've not always been a plant person. And I I wonder how many people out there might be intimidated by me using these scientific names for plants. I'm a software engineer. You know, I, I didn't come from a gardening background or a farming background and I just became interested in this and started to learn it. And one of the things that helped me out was this tool on the website called Dave's Garden. The tool is called Botanary, kind of like a dictionary, but Botanary. 
And what you can do is you can type in a botanical name. It'll tell you how to pronounce it and what it means. Oh, that is so helpful. I just butchered the scientific name. I'll go to the nursery and I'll just, and they just kind of laugh at me, but they know what I'm talking about. It's just the phonetics approach to the Latin name. <laughs> it, it's, it's tricky. And keep in mind, it's, it's not actually a Latin name. Oftentimes it's Greek. Oh my it's gosh. Latin or Greek <laughs> or it's fake Latin. Like, for instance, toxicodendron is Greek for poison tree. Oh my gosh. Right. No wonder I'm confused. Yeah. And so once, once you start actually learning what some of those scientific m- names mean, they start to become very enlightening. Like bee balm. No, not bee balm. I'm trying to think of one. Um, yeah. Garden sage is garden sage is salvia officinalis. And any plant that has the species name of officinalis is going to be a plant that was in the past used medicinally. Wow. Yeah, I've seen a lot of those names. That's very cool. Well, fun. Well, so um, I want to be able to tell my listeners how to get a hold of you to do your do your talk to their bee clubs because I know bee clubs across the country are looking for Zoom speakers since we can't all get together this winter in particular. And so how do they get a hold of you? How do they find you? Oh, I'm a little bit nervous about that because, of course, I'm terrified that someone in uh, the UP of Michigan is going to ask me to do a <laughs> bee presentation. I'd be like, I have no idea what grows well, okay, in your region. All right. Well, what regions so, do you feel like you are specialized in? I think I can speak confidently about what grows in the Piedmont region of the United States. And that is a region that in Georgia is going to be North Georgia, but not extreme North Georgia where the mountains are, kind of North Georgia where Atlanta and Macon are. If you get much further south of that, you get into a different region called the Coastal Plain. The Piedmont region stretches up the eastern seaboard, I think all the way up into Maryland. And the plants that grow there are all going to be basically the same. And so I feel very confident about speaking about plants that grow in that region. Um, Incidentally, it's also the region in the United States where the concentrations of invasive plants are the highest. Wow, how interesting. Yes, well, that covers a lot of ground. So all of the mid-Atlantic states and uh, and actually every plant that you've mentioned, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the higher elevations, but we, we have them all that you have mentioned. Yes, and I, there's a plant that, there's a tree that I think deserves a lot more love. It's called Devil's Walking Stick. It's Aurelia spinosa. It's called this because when all, when it goes dormant in the winter, it's going to look like a stick that's poking out of the ground that's just covered with thorns. I mean, nasty looking thorns. And so this is a plant that I tell people would make a good barrier plant. If you want to deny foot traffic from one place to another, then you can plant this because like sumac, it's going to colonize and make a little patch of them. But it's also going to bloom in summer and it's going to be absolutely covered in bees. It's actually a pretty plant. It's just not the kind of tree you're hugging if you're a tree hugger. Wow. Well, okay. So I'm going to look this plant up because I have seen that name a dozen times and the name has just thrown me off. Not so much the devil part, but all the thorny part. It just didn't sound like a very nice plant, but I'm going to look it up since you love it. It is an absolutely fantastic bee plant. In the Appalachians, 
I met a um, an old growth forest researcher, and he he was the person who would. Uh, what he called ground truthing. He would go into large national forest tracts. He was just a citizen scientist like you, and he would go in and document um, old growth forest when often the Forest Service would say there's no old growth in this area. And I interviewed him once for a magazine article, and he said that he would get the oldest topo maps and he would look for any coves or hollows that had the word devil in them. So like devil's this or devil's that, because back in the day, the loggers, if they couldn't get, if it was too steep or too difficult to get to, they would call it devil's whatever. And so that's how he found the old growth uh, forest in the in the Appalachians when he was mapping it. That's fantastic. Oh, what a good story. When I hear devil's whatever, it, it totally changed how, how I look at that from the, so I'm going to look up devil's walking stick and see what it, see what it looks like. So would you like to talk about some shrubs? Yes, please. What are your favorites? Okay, so my number one favorite would be summer sweet. It's Clethra alnifolia. And this is a shrub that is not going to do well if you experience drought. You've got to keep this shrub watered. I would actually suggest that you try and keep it mulched to try and retain some of that water. Some people describe this shrub as a thug in the garden because it will grow stalonically and form other summer sweets. And that's the reason why I like it, because I want more bee food, not less. And it's going to have highly fragrant flowers. I mean, you're going to walk by this and you'll be like, wow, that smells really nice. Or wow, that smells sickeningly sweet because it's almost cloyingly sweet. And you're going to be just amazed by the number of bees and butterflies on this one. That sounds wonderful. I actually have some. And uh, I, I was told that the tradition up here is that you plant them near your bedroom windows so that in the summer when you have the windows open, that, that smell wafts in. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I actually have one. I planted it near the walkway of my house. So when you walk, my dream was, okay, you know, you get out of the your car and you walk up the walkway and you get this incredible smell. And uh, so it took it about three years to get to where I could smell it. But it, it indeed does it. Now, it's getting kind of leggy. I think it's a little bit shaded there, but I, I want more of them. And I noticed that it has little baby plants around it. So I'm going to relocate some of those closer to the pond. Does your summer sweet bloom, uh, bloom in the shade? It, it's, in, and it's in about half shade. And yes, it, it blooms pretty good. I suspect it would bloom better in the, in the sun, but uh, it, it gets enough to have a nice smell when you walk up. I suspect it would too. Is I've heard reports that it does bloom in the shade. And I always like to confirm those reports because everybody has different experiences with plants. I am delighted at what you are doing in the world. It is such a, it's such a gift. And I have to ask, was it, uh, is it Wangari? Was that the, the woman, the African woman who inspired you to teach others to plant? Her name is Warangi Masai. Warangi. I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name exactly, but that, that is how I pronounce it. That's beautiful. She I actually, think... yeah, she won the Nobel Peace Prize for what she did. Wow, I think I've seen the advertisement for a documentary on her, and there's another documentary. I'll, I'll send the link and see if you've um, see if you've seen it. It's it's I think it's called The Man Who Planted Trees, and it's another African story of uh, of basically holding back the desert by massive uh, tree planting. So I am mm. so so for this because even though we might not have encroaching deserts, but you know, suburban urban kind of uh, rival desert in a way. We we do have encroaching deserts. They're called lawns. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's so true, right? 
Yep. That's what, that's the, the thing about lawns that of the various houses that I've lived in, you know, I just start wherever the edge is and I start moving in. I start, you know, trees on the outer edge and then shrubs as I move in and the lawn gets smaller and smaller. Well, my next favorite shrub would be New Jersey tea. It is Cuanthus americanus. New Jersey tea is going to be a smaller shrub, but it's going to have these huge clusters of white flowers on it. And the reason why it's called New Jersey tea is because the colonists in what was then the American colonies, when they did not have tea, they would use the leaves of this plant as a tea substitute. I've not actually done that before, but I've talked to people who have, and they say it's pretty good. So I don't really know what it tastes like. But this is also a summer blooming native plant that's going to be fabulous. Oh, that one. I've got to look that up because I have not heard anybody mention that one. Thank you so much, Jimmy, for taking the time. And tell people how to get in touch with you. What's What's a contact method that you feel comfortable with? They can email me and email me at bees at jimmygat.com. That's J-I-M-M-Y-G-A-T-T. Bees at jimmygat.com. And I'd be happy to talk to you.